Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. And this podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. This is one of the worst stories about official corruption we have seen in recent times in California. Back in 2014, Assistant Public Defender Scott Sanders of Orange County was the keynote speaker at the Vanguard's annual fundraiser and spoke about the jailhouse informant scandal of Orange County. At that time, very few people had heard of this, but it became a national story. And incredibly, the case kept going, on and on. The basics of it were that public defender Scott Sanders uncovered evidence that the Orange County DA's office and sheriff's department were systematically planting informants with prisoners in violation of the right to counsel and then deliberately not telling the defense in violation of Brady v. Maryland. There are all sorts of illegalities here that we can probably get into. Incredibly, the consequences here are both immense and underwhelming at the same time. For instance, the DA last year was defeated for re-election. And an Orange County judge effectively took the case of Scott DeCry away from the Orange County District Attorney's Office and put it under the auspices of the Attorney General's Office. However, the Attorney General's office, under both Kamala Harris and Xavier Becerra, fought the judge, attempting first to get him to reinstate the DA's office and then attempted to fight for the death penalty, which the judge ultimately took off the table. And at the end of the day, while the voters punished the DA, the AG's office closed their four-year investigation without any penalties at all. So I know I've oversimplified that, Scott Sanders, but did I get that right? Yeah, very nice job of describing what's taking place. So I know you've told us this before when you came to Davis all these years ago, but for those new to this, how did this story start? Well, um, beginning in 2010, I had another uh, death penalty case, People versus Wozniak, and in that case, we received information that there was an informant. Um, our understanding with the informant wasn't going to be part of the actual testimony in the case. We kind of put it aside. And then in 2011, at, at some point, when we, when I was assigned the Decry case, which involved this um, killing of eight people in Seal Beach, California, I was informed a few months later that there was an informant on the case saw that his name was um, the same, Fernando Perez, and that began sort of the digging process. Um, uh, it seemed unreasonable kind of on its face that the same informant would have landed next to two capital defendants, and you know, not just capital defendants, but they were very high-profile cases with a lot of interest um, from the prosecution being successful for, for obvious reasons. So here are the, here's a single informant who happens to find himself um, next to these two critical defendants. So that just began the effort to kind of get to the bottom of it. It started with what we often do, discover requests, um, discovery litigation, the prosecution um, uh, pushback, 
mightily in the decry case, argued that um, the informant wasn't getting any benefit. He was doing it out of the goodness of his heart, which is what we often hear in, uh, throughout the country in terms of situations where there's an informant. So luckily, Judge Goethals rejected the prosecution's request that we not receive any information about his background. Um, we got it. It was massive. There were about 10,000 pages in nine cases. And basically those 10,000 pages, I think, were were the case files in those cases. And myself, and initially one law clerk, but it grew quite a bit, um, just started studying, um, looking at the materials. And we found this uh, cache of notes that were in these files, but given to defendants at different quantities in different cases. And one was one set of notes were those of, of Fernando Perez, and one was a second informant um, who was also um, very clearly heavily, heavily involved in the same effort, a fellow by the name of Oscar Morial. So we, we kind of tore apart those notes. Um, we looked for names. We tried to figure out cases. And so in 2013, we beginning kind of in January until we filed a 500-page motion in 2014, it was figuring out what was going on. And we were very lucky because the informants were describing what they were doing. And that that's a break that most people don't have. We had this opportunity to kind of have them describe what they were doing, um, their plans, how they hoped to be moved or were being moved, or the plans to move. And so it really was kind of pulling apart that information, looking up cases, studying transcripts, seeing what was disclosed, getting to the bottom of what was taking place. And what we could pretty clearly see was that informants and their targets were being moved around the jail in a way designed to elicit statements and it seemed pretty clearly to elicit statements illegally. Our, the, the importance in our particular case was we were arguing it was not a coincidence that the clients got to cry, ended up next to the informant, Fernando Perez. It wasn't reasonable. And if you looked at the history of hidden movements and coordinated movements and the concealment of all of this, that we were more likely to be found correct. And if we were correct, we made the argument that both um, the prosecution should be removed from the case and the death penalty should be removed, kind of taking into account the, the, the quantity and the history of deception, concealment in the jails. From there, it would just keep expanding because we kept looking further and further. But in the Decry case, it began really with about a five-year period, looking back in this five-year period and seeing all of this evidence. I don't want to get ahead too far, but that would lead to hearings that would then kind of stretch over a couple of years and have, as you mentioned quite clearly, um, described quite clearly, um, first the removal of the DA's office after we lost. We lost, the, we lost everything in 2014, found more evidence, came back, and the court agreed to remove the DA's office. While, while um, that was before the Court of Appeal, we came back and found more evidence of still more concealment, and that would ultimately lead to the removal of the DA's office at a time while the Attorney General was uh, on the watch. They had the they had the um, case at that point. When did you realize just how big this was? Well, there were a lot. You know, there were aha moments kind of throughout. I, you know, certainly um, they kind of one of them was just just the rec- just the realization that the same informant was on two cases was an unbelievable moment because it just seemed right at that point. The chances were so minimal that that could be a coincidence. It just, you know, the jail in Orange County is 
anywhere between you know, 5,500 and 6,000 at any single moment. It's the sixth largest county in the country. The chances that that was not coordinated seemed unfathomable to me. You know, once we got those notes finally and the court ordered those notes, there were moments where I could see that the DA's office had turned over a tiny quantity of notes. In one case, a few notes in others. And then one, we got really lucky. In one case, there was considerable notes. And that's really what we work with. And then when we were doing it, probably the biggest single moment was when we discovered something called a decisive, what I called a decisive scam. There was this effort to put informants in disciplinary isolation. Um, and it was a tool that was being used to, to convince the targets that the people they were talking to were not informants. The idea being, if you put them in disciplinary isolation together, the target's never going to think that informants get uh, punished for anything. So um, it's a really smart technique. And one of the informants, Oscar Morel, was talking about it. He wrote this note in which he said, look, we used this, this technique before on a fellow named Vega. And we should try it on Palacios. And I'm not, I'm not using the names as much, but so one, the second person nicknamed Slim. And he's writing notes to the officers who he's working with saying, let's, let's, try, it with, let's try it with Slim. Let's try it with Palacios. It worked with um, it worked with Vega. Probably more likely to work with Palacios because he won't understand stuff. He's newer to the system. So, so I have that, and I realize, oh my goodness, we have we have like a very well articulated scam being used. It's being communicated back and forth. So let's go look at the Vega case and see. And I just you know got all the transcripts on the case, went through all of it, analyzed it. And could see that the prosecutor's office had only turned over four pages. And those four pages were not those that included the scam, right? They included the confession that happened. I still remember on 8 1 um, uh, 2009. So both the confession and the scam were on the same day, but they only gave the paperwork up of the confession. And so this fellow Oscar Morel had written 200 other pages of notes approximately. And I knew right then that the DA's office had hidden what's called the Messiah violation, the Sixth Amendment violation, based upon the notion that you cannot, um, you not, cannot direct your informant, your agent in there to question and represent a defendant. And that was precisely what was going on. And then to make sure they sealed the deal, they just gave us, you know, a, a small quantity of materials and didn't reveal, of course, what was truly going on in the jail. That was a, all of those moments kind of there um it was it was kind of gangbusters from that moment and that was like yeah i can definitely remember my locker coming in and talking to me about what she was seeing and we were figuring it out and uh, and you know really from there on as i worked through piece by piece and we did it in moments where you could just see it all fitting together it all made sense it was interesting for me because uh, we had invited you actually what turned out to be very early in the process. Of course, we didn't know this at the time. We thought, oh, okay, this this seems kind of interesting. Let's see if he'll come and speak. Um, and, and then just watching it unfold over four or five years uh, was incredible to watch and to watch it grow in magnitude. I mean, it went from kind of this scandal that kind of insiders like me knew about to kind of a national thing where where the national media is following this. 
Was it surreal to you at some point? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly remember coming out there. You were way ahead of the curve. I was rem- remember being surprised to, when you contacted me, and obviously it took off from then. It was it was surreal. I mean, um, the process of writing it was, you know, you know, we had five hundred pages approximately. We had fifteen thousand pages of exhibits, and that whole year was just a blur of preparation and you know, losing our mind and having exciting moments. The whole process was incredible. Then we get there and we file. And, you know, when you file something like that, you know, generally speaking, uh, most of our good work um, gets rejected in the criminal justice system. I mean, we got lucky here. We had a judge that was open to the possibility that it could be accurate and, you know, and reliable. And um, many courts probably would not have approached it the same way. And so it, it was surreal to then begin with hearings where the judge, you know, we were asking for hearings, but we're putting prosecutors and law enforcement on the stand to question. And he says, yes, I think there's a sufficient showing. So kind of, I don't remember what month we were out there, but we were out there really early. That was kind of one of the first moments when I came to see you and speak. And as I think around that time where it's happening, you know, we're, go- we're in court every day and you know, you've got to understand, I'm asking questions of law enforcement, and they're saying that our eyes are lying to us, that all of this evidence really isn't what it seems. There is no informant effort. They aren't coordinating the movements of people, and we're holding all the goods. It's it's unique situation for defense counsel where, you know, you're the one kind of in, in the kind of the winning, holding the winning hand like we were. Now, you know, we just had documents, we had materials, and none of what they were saying was making sense, but that made them no less insistent. You know, while that's kind of happening, we're just, um, we're pressing on and we're hope- we're making our argument and ultimately um, we lose. And that's, and that's partly what's surreal uh, and, and disappointing because when you feel like you've got it, we, we took a complete loss in August of 2014. And, and we had uncovered more as it was going on. There were kind of incredible developments, recordings that were sitting in one of the local jails that um, captured informants trying to trade um, benefits for improved memories, all sorts of amazing developments. So we lost. And, you know, luckily we were able to find some more evidence. And I was kind of going back and forth between these two capital cases and get, trying to dig it out in both of the places at the same time. And that actually turned out to be you know, kind of an important part of this, because even though we were much less successful in the second case, some of the uh, some of the best developments came out of that case, like we had lost and then we found these records called treads, which were records that have been around for almost as long as there's been a jail, but nobody told us. And it was the records of movements in the jails. And it was exactly what all of these deputies denied existed, because in the hearing every day, I'm asking, hey, you must have kept records about the informants. It's not like you would have had to document these things somewhere and document movements for the sake of people keeping people safe and knowing what they were saying and tracking. And they would be insistent that none of this exists. So surreal is kind of a constant you know, feature of this litigation. You know, they're denying things that couldn't possibly be true. But then just as surreal was to actually find that evidence after we had lost and the comeback court, you know, says, yes, you should be allowed to come back and have hearings. Um, put these people back on the stand and then have the DA's office recused. And, you know, while it's happening, it's your kind of, that, that's your kind of kernel question. Yeah, folks are starting to understand it more, and see it more, and realize this is something significant taking place. 
Can you kind of explain, because I think a lot of people are listening to this and, and they may be new coming into it. Um, what laws, in your estimation at least, did the DA's office and, and the sheriff's department break? So I think, you know, I think they've broken, um, you know, constitutional prohibitions on violating the Sixth Amendment. You know, that's been a that's been a constant feature, at least probably going back 30 years. We would come back and write on the second case, Wozniak, a motion that describes kind of the 30-some-year history that I believe, at least I could document. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a 50- or 60-year history. But the same things that were going on in the jail in 2009, 11, 13 were, were certainly happening in 1982. That's how far we went back. You could see the exact same things. And... So what they're doing is constantly, daily basis, um, you know, violating the prohibition on, you know, sending agents of the police into question represented defendants through all sorts of different schemes. I talked about this, putting people in disciplinary isolation to remove the hesitation of the target. They would use what we call um, informant tanks. Or snitch tanks, unquestionably using that way back into the early 80s. You can see it even, perhaps even more clearly back then, where you would take um, informants and high-value targets and put them in the same housing sector so they so the informants would have a target-rich um, environment in which to get multiple um, targets at the same time. Unquestionably, that was going on, and that was a big part of what was being hidden in the 2000s. Um, so... You know, whether we'll get to the bottom of this ever, I don't know, but there's really no question. I, I just think the evidence is, is kind of overwhelming and, and not really debated. I mean, I haven't heard, I haven't heard an argument really that it's, we're wrong. They just kind of stay silent on this topic, but I don't think there's any question, but, you know, back to at least the early 1980s, they're on a daily basis violating the Sixth Amendment rights of inmates and, it was built to do that. It was just that, that's how they built it. They rationalized it. Nobody stood up for 30 some years to say this is wrong. They liked what they were getting. And, and you know, as bad as all of that is, we'll have no idea how much favorable evidence they have. So that's, so you get the violation. But really what's happening is these folks are collecting all sorts of information. And if it was favorable, so an informant talks to somebody and it actually leads to evidence that the person was not guilty. Or you talk to somebody and they talk about another crime and said they've got the wrong person, which we have examples of, really ugly examples of. That evidence never made its way to the defendants who needed it. So it is just kind of everything you can think of that's wrong and bad in the jails was going on and went on for years and years. And if it's ended here, I I would have little faith that that's true. I just don't, I think it's, um, as we'll probably talk about, there's every reason to believe nothing has changed. There's no reason to have any faith in it changing. And I'm wondering, um, was most of the informant testimony, was it made up or were they actually testifying to real things that they were hearing from the high value targets? Well, you know, I mean, the good informants are always going to take a combination of, um, you know, information that's real, like they might know some aspect of the crime, and then just tweaking it slightly. So I think it's everything, you know, there were, and it's so hard, because nothing, very 
it very um, infrequently was it recorded. So um, it's it's everything in everything in between. You know, it is everything went on there. I'm sure there was just complete confabulation, and there were you know taking elements and mixing them together. It's not to say that the informant could never have repeated something accurately. You could have, but it's so there's just no way to gauge that. And because they they infected it with so much dishonesty and how they released the information and didn't release the information, they really spoiled the whole judicial and criminal justice process by doing it. Just you know, that question is just almost impossible to ask answer because the the most important evidence on that, you know, recordings in Orange County, they just didn't do it for the most part. And when they did do it, Often they hit it like we, you know, the one I was referencing earlier, this incredible recording that's been played a lot where Oscar Moriel is talking to um, these two Santa Ana, um, California police department officers and saying to them, look, um, I can give a lot, but I'm going to need to get a lot. And my memory um, can, you know, can fade or it can improve based upon the quality of what I get. Well, um, that Oscar Morial, that witness, testified in a number of cases, murder cases, and nobody ever had that information. So they never had that recording. They never had any idea that that existed. So, you know, I always talk about this when I get the chance. You know, that's bad enough. Um, somehow we miraculously found that when it was destined to just stay in a, a locker somewhere. Years later, but they were, but these folks were never going to tell anybody about it. How many things haven't we learned about? And I, you know, I've also said this. You know, once you know that a police agency is keeping in its locker recordings like that, if the justice system's working, there is a search tearing through that department the next day, looking for every bit of evidence that would be favorable to a defendant, and they certainly have shown no interest in caring in the least about that. So how much is sitting out there, how much has since been destroyed, we'll never know. And yet it seems like they left um, kind of a lengthy trail of all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely sloppiness, but it needed, I mean, you know, I say this, like Orange County, like most places, it's luck-based litigation. They did, but, you know, you know, obviously this case has just been, you know, a disaster and horrendous for these victims, but it, it seems incredible that it took this case to learn of all the evidence that was being hidden. So there was a trail, but you needed so many things to come together, and any one of them could have kept this going for another 25 years without anybody knowing. So yeah, that you're going to get sloppy, and if you're lucky, but I I'm sure that sloppiness is in jails all over the place, and it's just it just takes a moment, and you know people in the right position, and you know it'll it'll get undone somewhere else. But I, and I talk about this a lot. I talked about it when I came to see you, and I've talked about it in other places. Folks that think it's not happening identically are fooling themselves. Now, informants they close cases; they're super valuable. A weak case gets stronger, a case that's on the precipice of failing, that you can fill the gaps with an informant. And informants, despite all the reasons not to believe them, they're logically, 
they're they're very good car salesmen, especially the best ones. I mean, they really can sell. The informants that were on the stand in our case, they were hard to break down. They were on there for a good long while before I could kind of successfully gain ground um, on, on showing that they were being untruthful. So it's it's really a it's really a rough system for justice. And as we know, um, informants are one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions because they end up pointing their finger the wrong way. Right. I mean, that's right. And it makes sense that, you know, they are generally folks that are very thoughtful only about themselves. So they're looking for every edge. And where some of us would feel kind of constrained by a sense of decency not to help someone spend more time in custody all the way up to the death penalty, these folks are thinking about themselves and they're, you know, having seen it, they're just, they're just masterful. And so then if you, you add to this fact that you're, that the DA's office or the prosecutor's office is not sharing the details that would show why they're motivated or why they've been untruthful in the past or their relationship with law enforcement, Right. So here they didn't want us to know the full relationship that existed. They wanted to just say, hey, Fernando Perez, our informant in this case, was not doing this for any reason other than he was appalled by the crime and felt he needed to help. But when the real story is he'd been working in the jail for a year, night and day, the only thing he was doing and the only reason he was still there was to inform on defendants so he could work off his life case. That's a very different understanding for the jury. Right. You know, so, you know, what they would um, informants tend to want to say and prosecutors love it is that there was something about this moment that made me compelled to come forward and do this. Yes. Yes. I've had problems. Yes. I've made mistakes in my life, but I couldn't bear um, seeing um, this information not shared with families and jurors. And they say it again and again. And if you then hold back the evidence that that would show that to be likely untruthful, well, you know, you can't blame jurors. They're being taken to the cleaners and the prosecutors and law enforcement are helping them get there. One of the interesting stories, sub-stories in, in all of this uh, that I found really fascinating is what happens with some of the family members of the victims in the Scott to Cry case because they go from bitterly resenting you as this kind of obstructionist to realizing, wait a second, this guy's not the bad guy here. Uh, can you kind of talk about how that evolved? I think that evolved because um, some of the people were, many of the people, although you know, different people were had different expressions of how supportive they were. But I think if you're sitting in that courtroom, it was hard not to see just how dishonest folks were being and you know that doesn't that doesn't always overcome all of the other features of a case like this right that the relationships are with the prosecutor's office that that they're telling the victims that it's really the the defense are just bad guys trying to do anything they can to keep the defendant off death row all those things are happening here but you know i built a relationship you know, with two people, one, you know, particularly um, strong. And I think, and that person, you know, Paul Wilson was really one of the, you know, one of, um, was a person who kind of at the outset was 
kind of the harshest attacker on on me and you know and we've become i would say quite close friends very close friends and that i think he just watched it and watched it and watched it and listened to what the the prosecutorial agency was saying and it just wasn't making any sense and when he was going to them and asking for answers it just wasn't making any sense and that his eyes were telling him his eyes and ears were telling him something that just wasn't consistent with what the prosecutors were telling him. And it just kept going on. And you see more and more examples and more and more people on the stand. And, um, you know, and Bethany Webb was the other person who, you know, spoke, you know, spoke quite a bit, uh, ultimately supportively of us for, for, um, you know, working on these issues. But Paul Wilson and I, who've become friends and he's become an advocate for reform here, we just didn't want to be a part of a process that wasn't working for victims or the accused. And he also, he's got this kind of energized spirit for accountability. He just doesn't think they should get away with what they've done here. And he studied and listened. We talk almost every day, even now. And he goes to court cases. He was at a court case yesterday. And if you watched him at the beginning, it would seem unfathomable just where he was. And again, you know, he, they had all suffered these terrible violent losses and they were in pain. So I don't ever blame them for feeling, you know, very strong emotions toward me as well. It was just kind of miraculous that some of them came out of it and said, we, we, we know that um, it's important that the truth be told here and we want it to be fully told or else the, as bad as this experience is, it will even seem less just and less right if those who are responsible get away with it. In addition, I mean, of course, they wanted accountability for my client, and I understand that, but they, they viewed in the end the death penalty as being far less important than the justice system improving. And the judge here is kind of an unlikely hero. I mean, here you have a former prosecutor that you would expect to kind of take the side of the prosecution, and I think he did early on, and, and he got won over. Right, Judge Gothels. I You know, it's an interesting thing. Unlikely, he was a prosecutor, and then he was a, um, and he was a defense counsel, a judge, and he always had the reputation as being very fair, and 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 that's all that he was in the end. He was just kind of fair. He looked at it. Now, that that fairness required a tremendous amount of courage, because as you alluded to, the district attorney's office responded to him even allowing a hearing to take place by engaging this process called papering, which, uh, you know, you're allowed to do under civil code of procedure 170.6 allows you to one time in California, remove the judge who's sitting there without an explanation. So that was done in mass volume by the DA's office. He was, he's what's called a long cause judge taking the most serious cases. And his courtroom was largely shut down for an extended period of time. And, you know, he could have relented, he could have you know, said, look, I, this is, I, I love this work and I don't want to let one case interfere with it. But I think in the end, he just thought the right thing to do was to call it the way he did. And, you know, and I think when he ruled against us, he called it the way he, he thought he did and thought was right. Um, I may respectfully disagree with what that ruling was, but we came back, gave him more evidence. He opened up his um, thoughts to whether he should change the ruling. He did it and he did it. He was doing all these things while there was kind of an immense outcry about what he was doing, not in words, like no one's going to run around and go in, 
you know, Judge Goldberg was awful, although there was some of those things in the, in the, uh, the chief prosecutor at the time, Tony Rakakis, was certainly vocal at, at moments, sometimes when he was being recorded and sometimes when he didn't. His opponent, I think, at one point kind of presented some recordings of him denigrating the judge to sort of a incredible level. But yeah, I know he's, the, you know, that I would say in some of the, you know, the heroic figure is always going to be the judicial officer who, you know, stands up at a moment like this and does what he thinks is right. And so often we don't see that. And, you know, I guess my biggest disappointment is that once you got outside of Orange County, it didn't seem like anyone was willing to step up and hold these people accountable, not Kamala Harris, not uh, Xavier Becerra. I mean, people that, uh, you know, otherwise claim the mantle of progressive prosecutors, they, they're they not doing anything here. Yeah, no, you know, look, I mean, as odd as this may be to say, we really don't know what the U.S. Department of Justice will do. They have been, they have been here, and I'm going to hold judgment. I, I'm not... Um, I think uh, by all accounts, they've worked very hard and we'll see. We'll see what happens with the U.S. Department of Justice. The the um, California Attorney General, yeah, it was a disappointment. Now, I can't say it was a surprise. It's just, you know, in California, you can call yourself progressive prosecutor all you want. But in the end, very few prosecutors want to take on law enforcement, especially folks with aspirations that are greater than the ones they, they stand in or they want to be reelected. And this was, yeah, this was kind of a travesty of justice led, you know, first by Kamala Harris and how they ended it here, just kind of hid the truth that they had really ended their investigation years earlier and wouldn't say the truth about it. This is really incredible what they did, that they tried to pretend like they were in an ongoing investigation when it certainly wasn't true. Um, and they have massive quantities of materials available. I mean, in a, in a federal case, it came out, in one of the cases we had litigated quite heavily, you know, the, the U.S. Um, Attorney's Office has compiled you know, probably hundreds of thousands of documents here. So they have a lot to work with. And um, they, the California Attorney General's Office just doesn't want to. I mean, the, the bottom line is they don't want to be in a place where all sorts of Cases are getting questioned and reexamined, and all of those things. They wanted they wanted the easy route, and they got it. And you know, it's certainly far from done. I you know, I think we've got a lot of fight left in this game, and we're still litigating these things um, and litigating how they responded to the performance scandal and all the responsibilities that, that should have carried forward for these um, for disclosures regarding the deputies involved. That's kind of where our litigation is focused right now, and it's not. Uh, it's uh, it's not it's not a good picture for them right now. Either the either the district attorney's office or the California Attorney General's office, and, and the ramifications when you don't stand up to law enforcement, they might seem good at the moment. You know, you've kept their favor, but what happens when it really gets clear, and it's getting much clearer here, just how much evidence was held back in the aftermath of the rulings, um, could be could be quite significant. So Tony Rakakis ends up uh, losing to uh, this former Republican legislator, uh, Spitzer. And so has there been a change since the new leadership has taken over? Oh, boy. You know, we can't see exactly what's going on. 
behind the scenes, but the signs have not been good so far. The people that were kind of most prominent in the scandal have remained in office. One was, he was actually the prosecutor for the DA's office was, um, he, he actually demote, asked for a demotion to be protected from firing, it appears. And then the information, I can't say 100%, but he certainly was then promoted. I think it's clear that he then, that Mr. Spitzer then promoted him, kept other people, uh, Mr. Spitzer, in positions that seems unlikely. The prosecutor who, um, one of the leaders in the office who called it all baloney. And you've got to understand, Mr. Spitzer was, was running basically on our narrative. So he was arguing that we were right and they were wrong. And then when he got there, he kind of left all these people in place. And so it's not stunning, but it's, it was immensely disappointing. The other thing that has kind of come out of it is, is like I said, the issue that I was mentioning. And that's in 2018, on a, one of my cases, we looked at the disclosures regarding those people that were connected to these key units in the jail. And we looked at several thousand cases and we, we were able to find 146 cases where former deputies in these units testified at preliminary hearings and trials. And we couldn't find all of the evidence at least indicated that there had been no disclosures in any of those cases. And we argued that that essentially required the recusal of the DA's office in our case because they, 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 they were kind of uniformly unwilling to follow their Brady responsibilities and turn up make disclosures. And the DA's office said we were wrong that um, they had done Brady tests. And in the last couple months, we've had some new, a new series of blockbusters. One of them is that Tony Rakakis wrote a letter on his way out of office and said, um, we are kind of clearing 10 deputies in those units and revealed this unique test they had used to determine whether folks had, um, should be on their Brady list. And it was, it came down to a single email. An email had been sent several years early or earlier asking deputies, do you have materials with you? And if they said no, and it was believed they didn't go on the Brady list. So instead of looking at, hey, all these documents, notes, and logs that were discovered that would show them to be dishonest or deceptive or concealing evidence, they just used a single test. And it was it's clearly a fraudulent test uh, designed to clear people. And it looks like by, you know, Mr. Mr. Spitzer um, made a, issued a press statement in indicating that in early 2018, we had, he had that letter. And we were in the midst of litigation much later than that. And the question we've raised in, in a filing last week was, why didn't you give it to us? We were making an allegation that you folks weren't following Brady's mandates. This letter clearly shows that was true, undebatably. It also shows we were right. You didn't do anything until essentially we started making these allegations in 2018. Did nothing 2016, 2017. The letter proved it to be true. You held on to it. Why? And now we're trying to get to the bottom of that. So I think it's a, I think it's a very concerning moment um, right now. And we'll see what goes on here, but we're trying to press these issues because they're really important. They go not just to the issue of Brady disclosures on this very specific issue, but kind of this fundamental issue. Prosecutors get to walk into courtrooms and say, I met my Brady obligation. And nobody knows what that means. And judges generally will not press prosecutors. It, that's part of this unusual aspect of how um, how it goes. And that's that prosecutors can say, I've, I fulfilled my obligations. I looked at these materials. In this litigation, I was saying, judge, you can't do this because it doesn't make any sense. 
they're, they're over 146, just their bare representations that they're doing it, it shouldn't be enough. And so we're going to now revisit this issue now knowing it didn't happen. You never did do it. And we'll see what happens with that. And there's another scandal, a phone scandal. Right. So that's just another you know, issue in Orange County, which really should be a phone scandal everywhere. And this is about the sheriff's department. Again, you see many of the same people in that unit, the special handling unit, listening to our clients' calls. And Global Telling, which is a company that I think has about 90% of the inmate calling business in the United States. So basically, they, they, they give, they, they um, facilitate the calls from inmates out to the community. They charge exorbitant sums for that. And then they, they then give kickbacks, large kickbacks to counties. This is the same um, formula everywhere, regardless of the company. Orange County, I think, got $4 million in kickbacks last year. I'm sure they don't like to be called kickbacks, but it can really be seen as nothing else. And then they also get these premium investigative um, tools so they can listen to calls, um, access calls, do it quickly, can actually do it in real time. Um, there's all sorts of searching tools so you can get into the, the data and get to these things in ways that most people don't even know about. Well, in Orange County in 2000 and last year in 2018, and, and not in our litigation, it was discovered that over a thousand calls had been recorded and 58 calls had been accessed, um, uh, calls accessed total of 87 times. And those calls, um, were recorded. I mean, we have real questions that the numbers are accurate, that, that the numbers aren't more likely in the hundreds of thousands for lots of reasons, including questions we've raised in a, in a series of filings about um, how GTEL accounts for its recordings, things that don't make sense in the numbers. For example, um, there are 1,300 numbers left off of a list of protected calls called numbers for counsel. And there's 1,079 calls in three and a half years. doesn't make a lot of sense on its face. But then on top of it, there's long stretches where, where if you believe their records, there's not a single call to these numbers. One is a period of five weeks in the jail without a single call according to their list. So we've been challenging the list. And, and then we've come to realize that this happened in another location in Florida three and a half years earlier. And it certainly appears from everything we haven't. And by admissions and a hearing that took place here, that that GTEL knew that there was a problem that attorneys numbers had not been uploaded so they could be protected, and as a result, um, calls were being recorded in Charlotte, Florida. GTEL didn't tell anyone, and since the same system, essentially with this um, changing of of their what they call their um, you know kind of their highest level technology getting these counties to change and upgrade their telephone platforms. This, this certainly was repeated in hundreds of locations throughout the country. So again, um, I've been kind of on the march telling counties what's happening in Orange County has certainly happened in your location. And we've, you know, we've been looking at, um, we've been looking in other counties to see what happened and what the communications were. And every indication is that um, the same um, problem repeated itself all over. But, I'm not sure what will happen. You need, you know, we got to have bring big energy to this because, you know, companies like this get away with it and and they do it in um, in concert with law enforcement. 
you know, they're getting our strategies, they're getting our calls, and we have to kind of be very vigilant about this and fight very aggressively. We're trying to do that here, and I think it'll happen in some other places. So I'm wondering, and this is kind of the last question here, I mean, is it worse in Orange County, or is this just happening everywhere and we just don't know it? I, you know, I think my, my bet is it's happening everywhere. I mean, I don't think Orange County is kind of a outlier um, law enforcement or prosecutorial agency. I think folks, when you inculcate winning, has been your highest value. All sorts of things go haywire. And if you, on the other hand, do something miraculous and say, we don't care if you win, just do it by the books every time. If you come back and you lose three cases, but you did it in a way that further justice, because it was absolutely fair and proper, you won't have these things. But here, the value has been too often and too great winning. And I just don't believe it's far different here than other places. And, you know, when I get a chance to talk around the country, I certainly don't feel like it's anything different. I'm not sensing that it's it's somehow different. I'm not disparaging every prosecutor. There's plenty of great ones, no question about it. And there, there's probably many counties where it, um, the value in winning is much lower, but everyone should have immense reason for concern when they see these things. Thank you for being on our show, Scott. Thanks for having me. This has been the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm David Greenwell. We will be back next time with more talk of the criminal justice system.